Good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. As uh, Dr. Steve just read, we will be in 1 John 2, 19 through 20. This morning, what we do is we just basically preach through books of the Bible. And so right now we're in 1 John. After that, we'll do 2 John. And then after that, 3 John. And after that, not really sure. We'll plan that uh, at some point in the near future. But uh, we'll be in 1 John 2, 19 through 20 this morning. As you turn there in, uh, in your Bible or on your device or whatever it might be, I want to tell you something that happened to me a couple of weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago, my brother-in-law got married in Colorado. So, uh, so my family uh, took a trip up there and... And, uh, and so that sounds lovely. I love Colorado. I love mountains. I love cooler air. I love traveling. I love all of those things. But I also have a three-year-old and a three-month-old. And you may or may not know this. You can probably imagine this if you don't have personal experience. But traveling with them can be challenging, especially whenever you are flying. And uh, so the entire airport airplane process is really difficult whenever you have one kid, much less whenever you have two kids, especially because you're overpacking. You have to have an entire suitcase for diapers and wipes and toys and books and all of these uh, sorts of things. Uh, and then you have to have strollers and car seats, which we decided to just gate check. That will be important to later on in uh, the story. And so that means you have to go through security with them. And so as we're trying to figure out how do I compress everything down in order to get on the x-ray conveyor belt to go through uh, security, my daughter is literally just walking through the metal detector and walking back and then walking through and walking back. And I think they're going to taser. <laughs> and I think as long as she survives it, I'm kind of okay with that. Because in this moment, this is a very difficult sort of stressful process because I feel like no matter... I know I don't pose any danger whatsoever to the TSA, but I always feel like I'm going to do something accidentally wrong and they're going to make an example of me. I don't know what that would entail, but I don't want to find out. It's kind of like the soup Nazi in Seinfeld. I feel like unless I do everything perfect, they're going to get mad at me and uh, I'm going to end up in uh, airplane prison or something like that. So we finally make it through security. We get to the gate and we're sitting there and, uh, and then obviously the flight is delayed uh, not merely once, but a couple of times. So now we have to figure out how are we going to entertain our kids, not for just the two-hour flight, but for the entire five hours now that we're going to have to be sitting here uh, in addition to uh, the flight. And so it was a whole lot of fun. On our way back, we, we, we get back to Texas, we land, we're safe, everyone survived, uh, and, uh, and get off the plane. And so I wait there on the jet bridge. If you've ever checked a stroller or something like that, you know, that's where they bring it out. Unfortunately, we were the only people on the entire plane to gate check anything and they just forgot to bring it to me. So I'm standing there on the jet bridge in Texas heat, even though I'm prepared for, you know, I woke up in the morning and it was in the high 30s, and now it's 100 degrees, and uh, so I'm sweating. Uh, Casey and the kids go into the terminal so they can have air conditioning, and I'm just waiting there. The pilot for the next flight gets on already. Every, all the passengers are gone. There's a flight attendant that's waiting f uh, with me. I'm not sure if it's because she's taken pity on me or if it's because I've been deemed some sort of flight risk. Uh, and, uh, and so she's standing there, and, but she can't call anybody because the phone doesn't work. And why wouldn't? 
you know? And, uh, and so uh, she's waiting there. Finally, she figures it out. She goes, walks down the jet bridge to the gate. They call and they say, oh, we totally forgot. And so they bring it. And so I f- assume that by now, we're going to walk out. We're going to get to the baggage check and our luggage is going to be there. But it's not. We have to wait for another 45 minutes just on the little conveyor belt. There's a lot of conveyor belts uh, apparently at the, uh, the airport. And so we're just sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting and nothing's happening. It's not even turning. No baggage is coming out. And so I decide I'm going to go over to the, uh, the, the, the baggage office and just ask, is there some sort of problem? And so I'm over there and I'm in line and I'm waiting and I look back at our uh, uh, whatever that uh, island is called, and, uh, and, and as I look back, I notice that there is this strange woman that is pressing, uh, pushing, not pressing, pushing my son in uh, the stroller and walking in my general direction. I have no idea who this woman is, and she's just pushing my son. So I look over at Casey, my wife, and, uh, and she is not paying any attention whatsoever. She's trying to corral my daughter, and, uh, and so I've seen the movie Taken with Liam Neeson. I have actually taken two free self-defense classes. So I do what any highly trained father would do in this situation. I scream Leroy Jenkins. I jump over the carousel and I tackle this woman. That's not what I did. I didn't actually do that. (laughs) And instead, I calmly call my wife. I see she's walking in my general direction. The worst that's going to happen is she's going to make it all the way to me. And I can ask, hey, who are you? Why do you have my son? Uh, But uh, I call my wife. And as I'm calmly calling my wife... And she answers, then this lady all of a sudden takes the left and heads outside. She opens the door and she's just outside now. I'm still calmly talking to my wife and I calmly say to my wife as she answers, did you know that someone is pushing our son outside and who is this woman that's pushing outside and why is she pushing our son outside Now, that's kind of what's happening in the book of 1 John. There are these people who have gone out of the church And so there's confusion, there's fear, there's uncertainty. Why is this happening? Now, in my context, the reason was because actually my wife, unbeknownst to me, knew this person. She was actually uh, in the wedding. uh, And uh, and so my wife had actually gotten to meet her during the festivities, but I had not. And so she was like one of my uh, now sister-in-law's best friends. And, uh, and so my wife trusted her. She said, hey, I'm just going to take your son outside just a little bit just to kind of move him around. And, uh, and so my wife said, that's great. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And, uh, and so that was the case in my circumstance. But in 1 John, the exact opposite is happening. The reason that these people have gone out of the church is not because they can be trusted. It's the exact opposite. They've actually denied the gospel. They've denied Christ. They've renounced Christianity. They are false teachers. According to uh, the, the previous passage, they are considered antichrist. So that's the passage that we're going to talk about this morning. I want to pray for us, and then we will uh, dive in together. I'll ask first that you just pray for yourself, that the Lord would give you uh, eyes to see and ears to hear and an undivided heart and mind this morning. And then would you pray the same for those around you that the, the Lord would give us corporately as a church body the opportunity to really pay attention and to be stirred and moved and convicted and challenged and comforted by his word. And then would you pray for me for faithfulness and boldness. 
So Father, we confess that you're good and that you do good. And so this passage you have inspired for our edification and encouragement. And so I pray that you would both challenge us and confront us and convict us and comfort us and do all these things through your spirit as it speaks through, uh, as he speaks through your word. We pray these things because you're a good father who gives good gifts. And so we pray all this in Christ's name, amen. Let's look at verse 19. It says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And I want to start with that first phrase there, they went out from us, and begin by kind of reminding ourselves of the context of this book, the historical context of this book. John has written this epistle, this letter, for both pastoral and also polemical reasons. We've talked about the word polemical before. Polemical means that he writes this to offer a critique or to engage in an argument against an opponent. Pastorally, he's comforting the sheep, but polemically, he is confronting the wolves. And speaking of wolves, that's the they in this passage. So look at verse 18, one verse prior to this. It says, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. So that's the they in our text, verse 19 today. They are these false teachers. They are these people that John describes as antichrist, those who deny Christ, according to verse 22. Verse 22 says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So as we talked about last week, we spent an entire week just on one verse last week. As we talked about last week, the term antichrist doesn't just refer to some future figure like Nikolai Carpathia from the Left Behind books or something uh, like that. It refers to an entire category of false teachers, guys like Arius, the early church heretic, guys like Muhammad, the founder of Islam, guys like Joseph Smith, the, found, uh, the founder of the Mormon church, uh, ladies like Mary Baker Eddy uh, or David Koresh, even people like Oprah or Tom Cruise or something like that with Scientology. Antichrist isn't just this term that we use only for some future figure, some powerful world leader, but could refer to any false teacher who denies these fundamental aspects of the faith. Someone in your school, someone at your work, your next door neighbor, maybe even someone in your room, uh, maybe someone, even someone in this room. Now don't look over at someone and point at them or something like that. But that's what Antichrist is. It's this larger category of false teachers who deny fundamental teachings of the faith. Now, that doesn't mean if you don't fully understand the Trinity or if you differ in some finer points of ecclesiology, that's the doctrine of the church, or eschatology, that's the doctrine of the end times. That doesn't mean that you're an Antichrist. But it does mean that if you deny some of these essentials of the faith, the deity of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the Trinity, whatever it might be, that you are, according to this uh, passage, you are an antichrist. You are a false teacher. And so that's the they, these antichrists, these false teachers, those who denort and, uh, distort and deny uh, certain fundamentals of the faith. And as a result of their heresy, they've left the church. That's what he means there and says, they went out from us. 
right? We don't know much about this event historically. There's not much uh, in terms of other writings by church fathers or something like that that tells us when this happened or, or why it happened or whatever it might be, in, uh, might, might be. But it would have been obvious to those to whom John is originally writing. If you are a, uh, an early Christian in the first century, imagine this from their perspective. Your friends, your family, maybe even your pastor has pursued this false teaching, these false teachings, and thus abandoned you. So how are you feeling in this moment? Well, you're probably scared, you're probably confused, you're probably discouraged. So John explains why they left. Look at the next section of the text. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So imagine being back in high school on the first day. For some of y'all, that's like your worst nightmare. For some of y'all, that's literally the nightmare that you're currently living in. But imagine that you're back in, uh, in high school. You've got a new backpack. You're feeling great about the new semester. You go, you're talking to some friends. And so you walk into the classroom, room 102. It's intro to math or whatever it is. And then all of a sudden, the person starts speaking in another language, in a dead language of that. And after a little bit, you realize you're not actually an intro to math. You're an advanced Latin in room 103 or you're in room 201 or something uh, like that. Now you have to decide, are you going to just tough it out? Are you going to sit there the entire time in advanced Latin, which you don't speak? Or are you going to get up and you're going to leave? And if you get up and leave, what are you going to say? You can't say anything. You can't interrupt the teacher and say, sorry, I'm in the wrong class or something like that. You just kind of have to leave. And nobody knows why you're leaving. The reason that you're leaving, though, is because you didn't belong. You never really were registered for the class in the first place. And that's kind of what's going on here in this passage. John says, yes, these antichrists, these false teachers, they've left. But he says they never really belonged in the first place. In fact, their leaving is the evidence for the fact that they never really belonged in the first place. So one of the ways that we recognize these false teachers, these antichrists, is by their doctrine. We've seen that. We'll continue to see that in 1 John. But another way is by their action, that they abandon the church, that they depart from fellowship. They reject the body and bride of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone who leaves a local church uh, is an antichrist. For example, if you get a job in Oklahoma and so you have to move and you leave Parkway, we're not going to call you an antichrist. We're going to make fun of you for moving to Oklahoma, but that's about it. But that's, you should expect that. Their slogan is, we're just okay. That's literally their slogan. Now, John isn't intending in this letter, he isn't intending to write some sort of systematic theology textbook, some sort of deep theological uh, treatise that covers every sort of question that we might have. He's writing within a specific historical context. He's writing to a specific uh, problem within the early church. These particular false teachers have left the church. That's what this passage is about. And yet at the same time, in the midst of that context, growing out of that context, we do find a text here which does help us wrestle with something that you and I might wonder. That is the question of what do we do with the issue of apostasy? If you've not heard that word before, apostasy uh, is when someone professes to be a believer and yet eventually they renounce Christ. They leave, they abandon the church, they abandon the faith, whatever it might be. This is especially relevant right now in, uh, in the context of, uh, of our current uh, 
sort of cultural situation. In the past two months, we've seen both a Christian uh, uh, a famous pastor and author and also a, a popular worship leader have renounced Christianity. And so kind of pop culture Christianity has been rocked by these two occurrences over the past couple of months. They haven't just left a local church, moved to another church or something like that. They've renounced the universal church. They've renounced the faith. They've renounced the body and blood of Christ. So what do we do with that? Well, one of the things that we do is we hold out hope that maybe these people will repent. Peter denied Jesus, but he repented. So that's our hope for these two individuals and for others that you might know. You might have friends or family who are in a similar sort of situation. That's obviously our hope, but this text is applicable if they don't. If so, it seems as though they're leaving as evidence that they never really loved Christ in the first place. They didn't truly love Christ in the first place. So this passage though, even though the historical context is not trying to give us an in-depth systematic approach to the topic of perseverance of the saints, this text actually becomes for us a really helpful way of understanding this question of whether or not someone can actually leave the faith whether or not a believer can lose their salvation. And so I want to talk a little bit of, uh, of systematic theology this morning. Uh, we talked about this, uh, by the way, back in January of this year in a teaching called Perseverance of the Saints, uh, Saints. And you basically have two camps when it comes to this question of whether or not a genuine, true, actual Christian, an actual believer can lose their faith. On one hand, you have a camp, you have those who, uh, who believe that you can be a genuine believer, truly love Jesus, and yet over time, you can actually lose your salvation, actually renounce Christ. You can actually, what's called apostatize. And this is a view that's typically related to a doctrine that's called Arminianism. Now, on the other hand, are those who think that a true believer will not, indeed cannot, ever actually commit apostasy. This is a view that's associated with what's called Calvinism or Reformed theology. Now, we as a church uh, think that the biblical evidence overwhelmingly affirms the idea that a genuine believer cannot lose their salvation, that a genuine believer will not lose their salvation. And whenever it appears as if a believer falls away, then either they will eventually repent of that or they were never really a believer in the first place. And this verse helps explain that phenomenon. So let's do a little bit of systematic theology by talking about perseverance. Let's start with a classic definition. This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it says this, I think we're gonna put it up on the screen. screen. They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. So this is perseverance of the saints. Not only are true Christians eternally secure, but they're also eternally preserved in such a way that they persevere in their faith. They persevere in their trust. That doesn't mean that faith never ebbs and flows. True faith, genuine faith can ebb and flow, but it never fully dissipates. It never fully disappears. It never fully goes away. In the midst of the, the deepest, darkest recesses of despair or depression or whatever it might be, there's always a hint, a gleam 
of that because God has preserved it. Again, that's what we think as a church that scripture teaches. And there's a number of ways that you can arrive at this particular doctrine. The first one is just simply looking at it logically. All right, so the first evidence for this is logic. Think about it like this. If God is known if God has loved, if God has chosen you from all eternity, if he's chosen you for all the myriad benefits of salvation, if he's effectually atoned for every one of your sins, past, present, and future, if he has provided faith and repentance as gifts, then it's surely his intention to keep you, to preserve you in his love. In other words, if dozens upon dozens upon dozens of other passages about the love of God, about the nature of grace, about election and predestination, about the extent of the atonement, if all of those things are true, then perseverance is logically necessary. For example, think about the implications of Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, which says, even as he chose us in him. Notice when he chooses you before the foundation of the world and notice the end to which he chooses you that you should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So the first argument is just simply logical. If all these other passages are true then the logical implication is you must persevere. But in addition to that, consider all of the passages that speak about eternal life. By the way, next week in Theological Equipping, we're going to talk about the topic of eternal life. But you cannot have eternal life and then lose it. Why not? Because then it's not eternal, right? Eternal life means nothing if it's not actually eternal. Or how about the following passages, which are a bit more explicit for you? So those are all implicit evidences. But look at these, Philippians 1.6 I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Or John 6, 39 through 40, this is Jesus saying, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Or John 10, 27 through 29, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I like to play a game with my daughter where I'll put something in my hand and I'll make her try to get it. And she never can quite, she'll pry open one finger and then when she's working on another finger, I'll close that finger and she never actually gets that thing. Now there could be some time in her life where she's strong enough and I'm weak enough that she is able to actually open my hand. But let me ask you this question, is that ever true for God? Will you ever progress to being able to actually open his hand and to extricate yourself from his love? No. And even if you could do it with the son, he's just said that the father's hand is also covering his. Or what about Ephesians 1, 13 through 14? In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 
When I was a kid, I've told you before, I worked at, uh, uh, at Marshall's when I was like uh, 16 years old, Marshall's department store. And so this was before everyone had, uh, at least everyone used credit cards, or maybe it's just because I grew up in Baytown and things were a lot slower there. But uh, instead of credit cards, everyone just used layaway. You remember layaway when that was a big thing? And, uh, and so people would come and they would put something on layaway. And some of those things would just stay in layaway for years upon years upon years upon years. Maybe you've even done something like that. Maybe you've put a down payment on something, and then you've later come to the conclusion, you know what, it's worth it for me to lose that down payment. And so you never actually secure the thing that it is that you are putting the down payment on. That's not what this word guarantee means here. It's kind of like a down payment, but that is much uh, too weak of an image. The word guarantee in the Greek refers to a payment which obligates the contracting party to make further down payments. I'm sorry, to make further and final payment. So you might decide you're willing to lose that 100 bucks you put as a down payment. Here's the question for you. What does God give as his down payment? His spirit. And he's not willing to lose his spirit. In addition to all of these passages that we talked about, consider my favorite chapter in all of the Bible, Romans 8, the chapter in which God's love uh, for me became more than just hypothetical and perseverance of the saints is there from the very opening verse. There is therefore now, not just some future reality, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So from the very opening verse to the concluding verses, Romans 8, 38 through 39, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's in the opening verses, it's in the closing verses, and everything in between as well. It's almost woven into every verse in Romans 8. Let me give you one example of that. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Let me ask you a question. If you can lose your salvation, how does God work that together for good? Isn't that the very opposite of what is good? If what is good for you is to be with Jesus, how can it be good for you? How can God work it together for good for you to lose your salvation? If you can figure that out, please email me because I don't understand it. So we know know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This has been called the golden chain of salvation. Notice that none are lost. None fall through the cracks here. All who are foreknown are what? Predestined. If you're foreknown, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And all who are predestined are what? They are called. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And all who are called are justified. And all who are justified are glorified. None fall through the cracks in that process. So this is perseverance. What God has begun, he will complete. As John writes, if they would have been with us, they would have remained. That's perseverance of the saints. Antichrist, abandon, but true saints remain. They abide, they persevere. Let's keep going. Next phrase. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. I want you to notice the first little use of the word that. You're welcome to underline it or circle it, whatever it might be. The little word that uh, is the Greek word henna, 
pronounced like that Asian temporary uh, tattoo. Henna in Greek express, expresses purpose or reason. And so why is that important? The reason why I think that is important is because it demonstrates that even though these people leaving the church might be confusing, might be scary, might be disturbing, it's actually a form of God's grace. How so? Well, think about the alternative. If they don't leave the church, what is the alternative? I've mentioned a number of times before, I think this is going to come back to haunt me because someone's going to torture me with this, but I have an irrational fear of lizards. When I was a kid, my brother would get lizards and there's a certain way that you can uh, like stroke under their uh, mouth or something like that and they'll open their mouth and then he would put them on his ear and he'd put one on each ear and then he would dangle them like this. And I was like three, and I'm forever tortured by that. I'm 41 now, and still I'm scared of uh, lizards. But imagine, if you will, that I have a lizard in, uh, in my house, and I have an option. I can, uh, certainly I can burn down my house and move, which is the best option, but let's imagine that's off the table. And I have the option, I can either catch it and throw it out of the house, or I can just simply imagine that it's not there and ignore it, Right? Now, you might think, well, ignorance is bliss, all right? That's not the case for me. I think that lizard is going to, I'm going to wake up and it's going to be on my face or something like that. I'd never sleep again the rest of my life. So let's change the scenario, though, because for you, you might say ignorance is bliss. I'd just let it go. And let's imagine instead of a lizard, it's a cobra. Now you see the analogy. Would you be able to sleep if that thing is in your house? No. What do you have to do? You have to get it out of the house. Well, that's what's going on here in 1 John. That uh, these false teachers, these antichrists, that it is God's grace to remove them from the church because what is the alternative? That they stay in the church and what do they do? They distort the truth. They destroy uh, those who are immature in the faith. They actually work towards the corruption of the church. So you see, there's this danger there. These antichrists, they stay in, they deceive, they distort, they destroy the congregation from within. So this God's grace to his church to remove these false teachers, it's kind of like a form of, uh, of church discipline that you see in, uh, in Matthew 18. In order to protect his children, God sends out these false teachers. For first century Christians, I'm sure this hurts. Again, this is their family, this is their friends, this is their pastors, whatever it might be, and yet the alternative is far Worse, which we would understand if we actually believed what I think we should believe, which is that heresy is horrendous. It's horrific. It's frightening. It's scary. It destroys the church. It perverts the glory of God. It diminishes your opportunity for ultimate joy. If you understood those things, then you would really understand how this is God's grace in removing these false teachers from the church. So abandoning the church is a sign of these antichrists. Their leaving kind of makes plain their identity. That's what it says, that it might become plain that they are not all of us. They weren't registered for the class in the first place. They're pretenders. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. And so leaving is the sign of not belonging, while perseverance is a sign of true faith. Let's move on to verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. Let's start with that first phrase, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. This particular Greek word for anointed is related to the word for Christ, which means the, the anointed one. 
But this particular word that's used here in 1 John is really rare in Scripture. In fact, it's so rare that it's only used one other time in Scripture, actually a few verses later. 1 John 2, 26 through 27. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So why does John write anointed and and use this particular word, given that the word is relatively uh, rare otherwise? Well, it's possible, and this is what some scholars think, it's possible that these false teachers really used that word a lot, and so John is is basically redeeming it and kind of using it against them. Let me give you an example uh, of that. It would be kind of like I'm, if I'm pr- uh, attempting to critique the prosperity gospel and I use this phrase, you want to know what true prosperity is? What have I done? I've used a word that is associated with this false teaching and I've redeemed it. I've, uh, I've taken it and I've actually shown there is this strong contrast. So maybe that's what he's doing. It's kind of like in that movie, uh, uh, Crocodile Dundee where he says, I kind of said Dundee with an accent there, I didn't mean to. Uh, Crocodile Dundee, where he says, that's not a knife, this is a knife, right? And so maybe that's what John's doing. That's not an anointing, this is an anointing. These false teachers are going around talking about how they've been anointed so that they can teach these mysteries and secret revelation and all that kind of stuff. So it's possible, and that's what a lot of scholars think, but at the end of the day, we don't really know why he chooses to use this individual word. But what we do know is the one who is doing the anointing. He says, you have been anointed by the Holy One. So who is that? Well, I think the most obvious and most likely candidate there is he's talking in particular about the Son, about Jesus Christ. It could refer to God generically, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But I think, given the context that it's referring to Jesus, since Christ means anointed one and Uh, since uh, Jesus is referred to as the Holy One in one particular gospel. You want to guess whose gospel? John's gospel, actually. And so I think that uh, he is referring to Jesus in particular here as the Holy One. So Jesus, the Holy One, has anointed. He's the one who does the anointing. But what is the anointing? Well, throughout Scripture, you'll see this imagery of anointing associated with the Holy Spirit. So that's how Christ anoints the church, by his spirit. If you're reading John's gospel, you might remember that uh, Jesus promises to send the spirit. And what's the spirit going to do? He's going to indwell the believers. He's going to illuminate them. And he's also going to teach them, which relates to the next phrase here where it says uh, something about knowledge. So Christ does the anointing and the spirit is the anointing. What does that have to do with the context? Well, remember, the book is both pastoral and also polemical. We've talked about the polemical elements. He's writing to combat these false teaching and these false teachers, but now consider the pastoral nature of the passage. Again, think that you uh, think about yourself as a first century Christian. Your friends, your family have left the church. They're teaching things falsely. You're afraid, you're confused, and John writes, but you have an anointing. And that's intended to comfort you. That's intended to encourage you. He's saying, in effect, don't be afraid. Don't be disturbed. Don't be discouraged because God preserves you. God preserves those whom he he loves and your reception of the Spirit and your union with Christ are evidences of that reality. Let me give you an illustration of this. Suppose there's this huge outbreak of some fatal disease, right? 
It's called Count Choculitis or something, right? There's this outbreak of this disease, and it's really scary. It's very fatal. It's very deadly. Uh, if you come into contact with it, you instantly get it, and you are dead very soon thereafter. But you and everyone you care about has been vaccinated. Now, if you hate vaccines, we can talk about that later. Just go with me for the sake of the analogy, all right? So you've been vaccinated against Count Choculitis. So are you afraid? No, of course not. Why not? Because you've been vaccinated. That's kind of what's going on here. There are these false teachers that are abandoning the church. Should you be afraid of that? No, why not? Because you have been anointed. You've been theologically vaccinated. Yes, these false teachers have abandoned the church. Yes, there's antichrist all over the place proclaiming false teaching, but you're safe. You've been anointed. You've been set apart. You've been consecrated to the glory of God. That's your theological vaccine against the dangers of this false doctrine. And what's the result of this anointing? Let's look at that last phrase. And you all have knowledge. Now, this is a really interesting passage because we really aren't sure if it should actually read, you all have knowledge, like it's translated here in the ESV, or if it actually should be translated as you have all knowledge. Let's put both of those up on the screen uh, to look at the difference. So should the adjective all modify the noun you, as in you all, or y'all here in the South, or does it modify knowledge, uh, as in know all, you have all knowledge? And scholars are pretty evenly divided on which reading is better. And so even though the ESV is a great translation, it's the one that we use here, I actually don't think that the translators get it right here in this particular case. I think that you have all knowledge is actually a better translation for a few reasons, but the chief reason being that it seems to fit the context better. Look a few verses down, 1 John 2.27, but the anointing, there it is again, that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, notice that, his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it taught you, abide in him. So the, the, the sense there, notice that John will write that the anointing teaches you about everything, which is roughly synonymous with the idea that you have all knowledge. So I think you have all knowledge is actually a better translation than you all or y'all have knowledge. But if John is writing that you have all knowledge or you know everything, what does that mean? Well, obviously, he certainly is not meaning that his readers are omniscient. What does he mean? He means that you already know everything necessary to know about the gospel. You don't need these novel, fresh reinterpretations, these divine secret insights that these false teachers are going around and talking about. That's what John is stressing throughout the book, that you don't need some sort of novel explanation. You don't need some sort of divine secret mystery, some fresh reinterpretation of Christianity. You already know everything necessary for life and godliness because you know the gospel and because you have the Spirit. That's what he's talking about here. You've been anointed by the Spirit of God, which is evidence that you know the gospel. So there's nothing else that you need to know. In other words, you know everything you need to know about the gospel because you have the Spirit. So great, you might think. I have the Spirit, so I don't need Scripture. Well, that's silly because where are we reading this? In Scripture. Or you might think, well, if I have Scripture, then I don't need others. But to whom is John writing? He's writing it to the church. 
So that's not what he's saying at all. He's not saying, I have the Spirit, so I don't need Scripture and I don't need others. It's just me and God and that is it. That's not what he's saying. How do I know? Because he's writing Scripture to the church, even as he says these things. He isn't commending individualism or this uh, private experience of revelation. Every passage, every you in this passage is plural. Again, like y'all. John is writing this epistle of Scripture to a church, not just to individual Christians. So although the Spirit is center stage in this passage, don't miss the role of Scripture and the church lurking in the background. Two of my least favorite phrases to hear as a pastor are, God told me blank, and to me, this passage means blank. Why? Why do I hate those phrases? Because nine times out of ten, what God, quote unquote, told you actually contradicts his word, which means God didn't actually tell you that. Or nine times out of ten, when someone says, to me, this passage means, it means something that no Christian throughout all of time has ever held that that passage means. So don't misunderstand what John is saying here. Yes, you have the Spirit, but you need the Scripture to discern the Spirit. And yes, you have the scripture, but you need the church to help you understand and interpret the scripture. Why is this important? Because think about how these antichrists arise, how these false teachers come to power. How do they do it? By coming up with these secret revelations of mysteries to which only they were privy. Or by twisting scripture in such a way as to neglect years upon years of Christian uh, tradition. By saying it doesn't matter that no one in the church has ever held this position, I have some sort of personal insight into the truth. By the way, what did that famous uh, author and that famous worship leader both recently say? That the church's traditional views on sexuality or the traditional uh, views on hell were too constricting. So they wanted to break free of the confines of evangelical theology and break free, free of the, uh, the constraints of Christianity as we have all known it. They need a fresh and new understanding of human sexuality and love and grace and the church and the Bible and all of these sorts of things. You know what else they both had in common? That they both talked about this was a slow, gradual descent into their doubt that it built up for years, frustrations and questions and doubts pent up like a slow leak in a dam until it eventually breaks. So yes, all that is necessary for life and godliness is from the Spirit, but we have no ability to discern the Spirit apart from Scripture and we can't interpret Scripture apart from the community of faith. So don't separate what God is meant to be joined together. Now this is an admittedly really kind of weird passage about antichrists and anointings. So what do we do with that in the 21st century here in, uh, in McKinney? I can think of at least three admonitions that would be kind of implications or applications of this text. The first one is that you should love Scripture, that you should love theology, that you should love truth. The Word of God is the very means by which God preserves His people. So don't neglect it. Don't toss it aside Don't assume you've already arrived, that you already know all there is to know. I'm not all that concerned that our people would follow someone who stands up and says, I am the Christ, worship me. But I am concerned that some of you right now, you have doubts, you have hesitations, you have frustrations, you're ignorant or embarrassed by what the scripture says about hell or about gender roles or about the exclusivity of Christ 
or about divorce and remarriage or about homosexuality or other issues of, of sexual ethics or predestination or whatever it might be. Having questions isn't a bad thing. It's a very good thing. Suppressing those questions, pushing those questions down, never dealing with those questions is a very, very bad thing. Eventually that dam will break. So would you doubt your doubts and get help? Speaking of help, that's admonition number two. Would you love the church? You were not made for isolation. We say this often. You have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You do not have a private relationship with Jesus Christ. That simply doesn't exist. Think about it like this. Even the father doesn't have a private relationship with Jesus Christ because his relationship with Jesus Christ also shares in the spirit. So you don't have a private relationship with Jesus Christ, so don't neglect the church. Don't buy into this modern fascination with isolation and individualism. Those who love Jesus, if you love Jesus, you love his body and bride, while false Christs and false teachers abandon the church. So I don't just mean that you should just go to church. I mean you should actually belong to a church, be a part of a church. It doesn't have to be Parkway. It has to be somewhere, though. Your life choices reveal your priorities and desires. So would you orient your life around the supremacy of the body and bride of Christ? Final admonition for you. Would you rest in the love of God? First admonition, love scripture, theology, truth. Second, love the church. I thought about making the third, love God. And yet that's the exact opposite of the point that I think this passage is driving home. Because it's not your love for God that secures you, it's God's love for you. It's not your love for God that's certain and secure, it's God's love for you. Our love is fickle. His love is final, his love is constant. The context of this passage is disturbing. There's antichrist running around like someone kicked an antichrist anthill or something like that. People are leaving the church, but you have nothing to fear because you have the spirit and you know the scripture and you're part of the body you're walking in community. More than that, though, be encouraged. Rest in the love of God because he has made promises to you and his faithfulness is not dependent upon your faithfulness. He's not uh, looking uh, to the ebbs and flows of your faith. And when things are really bad, his thoughts towards you are really bad. And when things are really good, he really likes you a lot. He's not fickle like us. So fear not, be encouraged. God is loving and faithful and kind and compassionate and good. How do we know? Well, that's what communion is all about. So let's pray and then we'll turn our attention to this symbolic meal where we see this visible, tangible expression of God's love for his children. Father, I thank you for the passage this, uh, this morning and for uh, a reminder of the faithfulness, the steadiness, the constancy of the love that you have for your people. Lord, that you would love us enough that you would give your son for us. Jesus, that you would love us enough that you would die for us. And that you'd give us your spirit. You wouldn't leave us on our own. You'd give us your spirit and you'd give us scripture as a guide and you'd give us the church community as a gift of your grace to us. And so I pray that those three things would collide, converge in each of our hearts, that we might be people who are inhabited by your spirit, people who are deeply passionate about your word, deeply passionate uh, about the church community and deeply passionate about the reality that you have loved us in your son. It's in his name we pray, amen.